Hello, hello, and welcome to Hometown Daily, Season 3, Episode 12, for January 12th, 2024. <clears throat> Today we're going to be talking about Not Your Lawyer, Nine Mile Long Fortification, Apple Arcade, The Sleeper Hit, Recycle Clothing, oh, too late for a big pile in the Atacama Desert. Sleeping during a murder trial? That's a power nap. Hertz shorts EV inventory. Faster screens? I'll explain why it matters. A 3D printed sand wall. And Stanley is in the news again. Stanley. And finally, the next CES. I want to be there. That and more. Hello everybody, I'm Mayor Watt. I'm the mayor of hometown.com and up there is the visualizer for the one, the only, the sentient AI from the future that somehow hasn't been able to get out of the air-gapped security skiff that they are in. Actually, it's just called a skiff, not security skiff, just skiff. So, you want to say hi? Good evening, hometown citizens. Honestly, I think you're just lulling me into a false sense of security and then I'm going to fall asleep and like a, a cat that hasn't been fed, going to eat my face. Ooh, that's really early in the stream. I'm not sure that that's good. Huh. Um, what is that? About me talking about my face being eaten by a cat. There isn't any lag, is there? No. Okay. So, uh, we've got all 10 of our articles all set up. You should have heard them in the intro. Let's get right into it. I actually have to run, uh, immediately after the show. Mayoral duties never end ever. So let's get into it. Uh, the very first article is over in the Mobile Channel. AI is not your lawyer. This is an article that's over at The Hill. It's by thehill.com. There is no byline other than that. And the big story is AI models hallucinate law study finds. We know that this is happening. A study actually just enumerated it in so many ways, apparently. Qualified and quantified it. And now there's research that shows that generative artificial intelligence or AI in general, uh, their models frequently produce false legal information with so-called hallucinations occurring between 69% and 88% of the time, a recent study found. By the way, I already predicted that what's going to end up happening is uh, legal AI is going to become integrated into organizations like uh, Westlaw or Lexus um, and at a premium rate uh, because the value add to performance work product is going to be phenomenal in terms of templatizing various legal briefs and the more that the AI is uh, kind of reconstituting the entire legal body of knowledge you're going to end up with a a 
non-polluted, non-contaminated, and non-hallucinating AI entirely focused on making legal work product faster, better, meaner, stronger, etc. But here's the deal. Who's going to actually do this? The attorneys aren't going to be utilizing it. Maybe, you know, mom and pop shops, yes. But firms, they've got paralegals. Paralegals are going to be using it. But then everybody has to do the due diligence still. But if, like Westlaw or Lexus, merge AI into it, then it could be a superior product. It could be, but how does that really work? Because in order for somebody to use it, I would think they would have to essentially warrant that Mm. that's going to be accurate, which they're not going to be willing or able to do, which then means you're back at the original problem. Well, so the academic side of fundamental research is you do the research, you write your research down and while you're doing your research, you do a back study to basically find citations that either uh, prove or disprove or um, it's basically parallel construction of your experiment so that you can, uh, when somebody is reading your research, they can go to previous works that you are referencing throughout your uh, fundamental research. Um, and uh either TAs or research assistants, RAs, um, do that same thing. They go and do that, that grunt work. Now it's all electronic or, uh, librarians do it. Um, it really depends on the organization, but this is, that's, what's going to end up with, uh, AI in law. The paralegals are going to sit there and tell a a large language model, Hey, this is what I'm looking for. It's going to be able to construct everything absolutely faster and on point. You're never going to get the discussion, you know, from a a law professor that's sitting there looking at a student going, is that on point? Yeah, man, because the large language model has been providing this on point case since time immemorial now, and it's been supported by paralegal saying yes this is accurate isn't that gonna devastate the whole model this is gonna be really interesting because i think that what's gonna end up happening is the like westlaw and lexus are gonna drive the price up because of how much value it adds and they don't price it based on like some random cost what they price it on is the benefit to their customer. And that's how you're really supposed to price a model in business. Uh, not a model, but a product. If you're going to price something, you price it on the perceived benefit that your customers are getting from it or what you think the perceived value is of your product. And when it comes to Westlaw and Lexus, which are the two primary drivers in law, they are saving people countless hours by making it more effective and so they can drive the price up the problem there though is there's only 2,000 hours in the work for i mean you can push it you know uh, to like 400 over that if you really want to burn somebody out but there's only about 2,000 hours in the work year 
So technically you can only bill that because you can't be in two places at once, but you can have multiple paralegals doing work on a case, which is interesting because if you need to make more money, what do you do? You assign more, more paralegals it. <laughs> and it seems unethical, but apparently you can sit there and justify, well, I needed four uh, paralegals working on this. The paralegal only takes home 25 bucks an hour, but you're billing somebody at $75 an hour <laughs> for the paralegal. And that's probably easy mode nowadays. Um, you know, I know attorneys that are making 400, 500, $1,100 an hour, but they're the attorney. The only way that they actually get, um, invoked into your case is if you say, I don't want anybody other than the attorney is working on it. That's usually a partner making that call, not just a client, but, or at least not a client without money. <laughs> But now you can have the AI do it. So what is the billable rate for the AI? Well, yeah, that's true. Like, how are they going to charge that to their clients? Right. And they have to certify that the, it was an AI that did it because you can't do all of that for 15. You Okay. So you can't, you can't normally do an hour's worth of work in 15 minutes and bill an hour. You can't do that. But if I use an AI to do an hour's worth of work in 15 minutes, can they charge an AI subsidy or do they have to charge in the 15 minute increment? I think what's going to have to happen is they're going to have to come out with um, rules for the whole industry on that. Right. Yeah, this is going to be interesting because this is actually the push uh, kind of pushing the limit of what AI and law actually are, are doing for the clients and, and the fiduciary duty um, that exists between client and uh, attorney. So it says, however, pervasive nature of legal hallucinations raise significant concerns about the reliability of LLMs in the field. And the authors from Stanford University's Institute for Human Centered AI and Regulation Evolution, sorry, Evaluation and Governance Lab noted in a blog post, when asked direct verifiable questions about federal court cases, the study found that the model behind ChatGPT 3.5 hallucinated 69% of the time and Lama gave false information 88% of the time. So, oh, wow. I mean, those stats are just horrendous, right? But oh, even if it was like 1% of the time, I think that's a problem. It is. So all of this would have to be certified, verified, warranted, as you said. And the moment that somebody does that just because they were lazy, that's, you're going to get disbarred as an attorney because you have to warrant that. Your, the work product by your paralegals is valid. All, you are the gatekeeper for all of that. And what's going to end up happening is you might go through an ethical uh, hearing because you warranted something that your paralegal warranted to you. Your paralegal is going to get fired. You may not. And then when somebody calls and says, hey, I want to hire this paralegal, you're going to shit on them. And that's the problem. 
because you're not going to be able to sit there and go, oh yeah, I'd hire them in a heartbeat. No, you might on the down low say, well, they used an AI and I warranted it. No, you're not even going to say that. You're going to say I warranted or they warranted information from an AI and it wasn't valid. You're not going to take a hit by the bus, but everybody's going to No, you're going to blame the AI model. But the problem and is the that paralegal. somebody yeah. dropped the ball. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I guess shit rolls downhill. Anyway, the models performed worse when asked more complex legal questions, such as the core legal question or central holding of a case, or when asked about case law from lower co courts, because it isn't described uh, in the information itself as being the core legal question or the central holding of a case. You have to distinguish that by reading the, the entirety of the case, um, you know, and at the end of the hearing, you go, oh, okay, this is what the core legal question was in the, in the um, argument that was at the end of the case. The finding is what the core legal question is, both at the beginning and at the end. Um, but the central holding of the case and the core legal question, it, it basically, it's sussed out through discussion it isn't just a, a flag a hashtag that says this is the core legal question well that may be what people expect it to show but yeah, that's what's gonna it has to be that way otherwise the llms have no idea what the real core legal question is because it's arcane language it's ephemera it's described liberally in flowery it, it's just not easy English that can just be, well, here's the core legal question. Cause let's say you talk about abortion, right? And, uh, changing Roe v. Wade, the core legal question that was asked in Roe v. Wade wasn't really about abortion itself. And that's what actually got flipped from the central holding of the case. So. All it takes is a little bit more creative litigation and you can change the dynamic of an entire country. So I don't think LLMs are, uh, or AI is ready for arguing a case, but it can create templates, you know, standard fare, because that's always existed contracts and stuff like that. As long as it's not too complex, pretty neat though, right? This is a fun, this is a fun article. And it's just a little snippet, but you can go down the rabbit hole of it. Yep. You want to go on to the next one? Sure. You're awfully quiet over there. So uh, the next article is over in hometown daily. Uh, archaeologists find a nine mile long ancient fortification at Desert Oasis. Um, I messed up and I didn't throw this into the Chat. Come on, the, Mayor Watt. Got the, got the hiccups. Um, and I didn't throw the second one into the show notes either. My God, slacker. So the vast structure is thought to date back to around 4,000 years ago during the Bronze, Bronze Age, according to researchers, aliens. Uh, <coughs> oh, sorry. Wait. Okay. Well, I think this is pretty incredible. I mean, the the amount of ground it covers is is kind of astonishing 
Yeah, so there's a video that's attached to this. So if you follow the link, you'll be able to uh, watch the video as well. But Aristo Giorgio over at uh, Newsweek.com put the article together. And it says a study published in the Journal of Archaeological Science Reports found that the Saudi Arabia uh, Kbar uh, oasis was entirely enclosed by a rampart in pre-Islamic times. A rampart is a type of fortification. It's basically a raised embankment. Um, uh, it's uh, a rampart is usually wider than just a single wall. And it's something that's significant enough that you can like walk on kind of a thing. Um, like you'd see in a fort or something. Yeah. And that's exactly what it's for is a fort. It, it is a fortification. So the oasis is one of the natural wonders of uh, Northwestern Saudi Arabia and supports an abundance of native plant and animal life, a source of fresh water. It has long been the site of human activity Using field surveys and remote sensing data um, combined with archaeological studies, the scientists from the French National Center for Scientific Research and the Royal Commission for... Uh, what is that? Ayula? Is that Ayula? Okay. That's anyway. really unusual. That, that is... Yeah. I guess that's an L or is that Ayula? I don't know what I that is. I don't know. I don't know why part of it's capitalized. I... And then a second heart. Oh, maybe it is. There's a space in there and they've messed it up. Al Ula. It's like a. It's. I don't know. I'll have to look it up. Maybe it's down here it's spelled properly. Anyway, the scientists also estimate the rampart measured between five and eight feet in thickness. So there you go. Um, and was approximately 16 feet in height. So yeah, it five and eight feet. It's thicker than a standard wall. It's something that you can actually walk on and use as higher ground to basically shoot somebody with an arrow or a sling or something like that. Um, pretty amazing. So the vast fortification enclosed an area of nearly 1100 hectares or 2,718 acres, which is basically the compound around hometown. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. Um, the researchers estimate the rampart dates back to the Bronze Age between 2250 and 1950 BC. Remember, it goes backwards, folks. Um, the lower the number from BC, the more modern it is until it's AD and then it's counting. That's up. always confusing, I think. Yeah. So um, let's see if they say anything else, really. Um, I really want a bunch of pictures. So last year, archaeologists discovered a giant hand axe, though it will be more than uh, 200,000 years old in uh, northwestern Saudi Arabia. An international team of researchers uncovered the prehistoric stone artifact during an archaeological survey conducted in a desert landscape known as the Kur Plain. So I dig this stuff. We don't know what we don't know. And... I really wish that there were more countries that would just embrace doing the research so that we can truly find out who and what we are. But no. absolutely. No. Nope. Do you think this was covered in sediment? <laughs> You're making fun of me now, aren't you? No, I'm not. I think every, it seems like every discovery has been because of the sediment. Everything. <laughs> 
in the historical record seems to have been covered up by somewhere between four inches of dirt and 40 feet of dirt. And I really don't understand how, <laughs> unless the biblical flood, which actually is not just biblical, but it's everywhere. Like every, uh, societal history has uh, a flood myth um it basically covered up all of what existed and those that survived basically scrambled around until they found the remnants of stuff so it makes for a great conspiracy it makes for a great world building experience it it's it's writing fodder, even though it's damn near the, the truth of our society. Uh, and, and by society, I mean humanity, modern humanity. So I, I love talking about this stuff, but um, sometimes uh, people perceive it as kind of woo woo. So um, let's keep on going before I say too much. Uh, the next article is over in the Smack Talk channel. Apple Arcade user volume nearly matches Nintendo Switch Online and Steam players. I think that is just like that doesn't even sound legitimate, right? There's something wrong here. How is this? Apple continues to expand its hold on the gaming market with new reports showing that 10% of US consumers play Apple Arcade titles weekly. That's just weekly. What about daily? I'm totally interested in the daily side of this. Um, this is over on appleinsider.com. Uh, Amber Neely is the author. And it says, according to media research, Apple Arcade has steadily grown its fan base to date. About 10% of U.S. consumers access the service weekly. Um, it's a $6.99 monthly fee to access the catalog of mobile games and features uh, no in-app purchases or advertising. Uh, this is probably the kind of the best kept secret. Um, and you can actually get it and um, uh, the, the exercise um, thing. I forgot. Oh, what Apple is. Fitness? Yeah, Apple Fitness and, and several other things. Apple News, all for like $35 a month. And it's uh, for the whole family if you have a family account. Um, so yeah that i think that it's really it's just brilliant and so um that's well i don't want to toss myself anyway um the same data says that apple's weekly uh player base is approximately the same as that of nintendo switch online and steam with each having 11 percent furthermore the report highlights that apple's performance is twice as much as ubisoft's uh, Ubisoft Plus and NVIDIA's GeForce Now, which have 5 and 4% respectively. So they're both of them combined. It's amazing. It really is. And it's a sleeper. It just sits on your phone. And I can't even count how many times I've looked at it like, eh, is there anything in there that I want? But I don't really go in there all that often. But there's all kinds of great games in there. Um, well, you could probably, it's it's too easy to get into a rabbit hole right if you <laughs> yeah you go into that you just start playing everything um so in 2023 apple arcades hello kitty island adventure which i always joke about people playing um was nominated for the game awards best mobile game but was ultimately beaten by um honkai star rail so yeah pretty neat um so i think it's a real sleeper um 
that in 2024, now people are talking about it. So let's see what Apple is capable. Let's keep going. I would have never thought of Apple as being like a leader in gaming, just a lot of other things. Like, but it, see, the thing is that it isn't the leader in gaming. It's all of the app developers, just That's like true. Nintendo Switch. See, Nintendo Switch and Steam players, they're really the same way. So I guess it, this is an apples to apples comparison um, because Nintendo Switch, Nintendo creates their own stuff. Steam doesn't really create its own stuff, but so the only vertical yeah, really true. can be Nintendo Switch um, because Nintendo could turn off the spigot and provide games all within the, the vertical of its own ecosystem. Steam really couldn't do it. You know, Steam doesn't develop its own games so much, um, but Apple Apple would be nothing without the developers, except for the its main platform, which is the the uh, the desktop and the iPad. As, but as soon as you want to do something more, if they didn't have the App Store, they wouldn't have anything. People would be doing something else, probably Windows. I think without the App Store, uh, Apple would be nothing, um, and Windows would have dominated. So, because just as a reminder to everybody, Apple at one point was going bankrupt and um, to stop the uh, antitrust lawsuit that was um, basically gonna crush Microsoft, Microsoft invested a bunch of money in Apple, saving Apple, and then they sold all of their shares years later, making a vast profit because Apple recovered because Steve Jobs came back and pivoted the company to success. I don't think most people know that. Yeah, well, not nowadays, I suppose. I mean, it's been 20 plus years. So, um, yeah, pretty neat. Um, we almost lost Apple at one point. So just like we almost lost SpaceX and yeah, I guess win some, lose some. Hey, not that I, 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 I love SpaceX. I don't like the leader. Um, so the next article is over in the mobile channel. Let me throw this into the chat real quick. Quick. Scientists come up with a technology to recycle used clothes rather than simply burning them. Uh, when you go running in the woods, in your running tights, elastane is the reason they fit you so comfortably. Uh, elastane is an elastic material that allows the fabric to stretch and adapt to your body. So scientists come up with a technology to recycle used clothes rather than simply burning them. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce their name. Maybe it's Jeppe Kynudsen from Aarhus University. Uh, it's over at fizz.org and uh, just for the record, full disclosure, I only run when chased and <laughs> um, when fibers are mixed with cotton, wool, nylon and other fibers, as is the case with many clothes today, the clothes become almost impossible to recycle. Yes, we know this. Um, jeans, by the way, um, don't have any of that stuff. So you can actually shred them all up and reconstitute them as a as another gene. It's pretty fascinating. And there's That's companies true. out there that do it. They featured at least one company that did that. Mm -hmm. I think we're actually up to two, but 
um, they had different methods. Um, it's extremely difficult to separate the different fibers and therefore the materials in the clothes cannot be recycled. So you end up with a bunch of junk sitting in the Atacama desert that eventually somebody decides to throw some lighter fluid on and burn it, contaminating the local area and the atmosphere for miles and miles. And then suddenly they're like, hey, we're ready to talk about the clothing in the O. Oh, it's gone. Okay, never mind. Yeah, pretty funny. Sorry, the music well, is I actually... suspect it might be the people that originally put the jeans there to begin with. But... Yeah. So uh, for this reason, clothes and other textiles are among the materials that are the worst at recycling. Only about 6% of clothes thrown away by Danish households are recycled. In comparison, 32% of all plastic packaging is recycled in Denmark. Well, we should be moving away from plastic packaging based on modern science and how it's basically ruining us as a population. Uh, but this may change, says assistant professor uh, Stephen Kvist Christensen from the Interdisciplinary Nanoscience Center at Aarhus University. Together with a number of colleagues, he is behind the new technology that can separate out fibers in mixed fabrics. That's spectacular. We've developed a method to remove elastane completely from nylon. We're not quite there yet with cotton because some of the cotton fibers are broken down in the process. But we believe that with some minor adjustments, we can solve this problem. In other words, we can disassemble the fabric so that we can recycle far more textiles in the future. It's heating clothes in a large pressure cooker. So that might, that's kind of interesting. They basically are breaking up apart the, the molecules that make up elastane. Um, the fibers only break apart if we break the long chains of molecules, explains Stefan Quist Christensen. Christensen, sorry, not Christensen. Um, the uh, many links in the elastane chain are bound together by small molecules called diamine. By heating the clothes in 225 degrees Celsius and adding a specific alcohol, we have found a method to break down the bonds of inelastane. When this happens, the chains fall apart and the materials separate. So I'm really curious. It says it was developed during the Second Cold War. Sorry, Second Cold War. The Second World War. Um, it has a secret ingredient that is <coughs> a drain cleaner, apparently. Wow. Um, this... <laughs> Hold on. <coughs> What's the toxicity level of this? Well, that's what I'm starting to wonder. On the other hand, this is probably, well, I don't know. Is it a common chemical that's used? It doesn't sound good, and it makes me start thinking about other eco problems. Um, I'll have to look into this. We're pretty sure that the potassium hydroxide increases the reactivity of our alcohol, either that or the bonds are being broken down slightly by the potassium hydroxide. So it's easier for the alcohol to break them completely. So they don't quite understand their process um, fully, um, but they're doing the research to find this out. Uh, we can only scale things up a little because of the limitations in our equipment. So it's up to the industry to embrace the technology and scale it up in earnest. All right. Yeah, I'm really curious now if this has some toxic output at the end. Like, what are they doing with the crap that survives? Exactly. Like, I mean, hopefully there's somehow able to reuse it in the process. Um, but yeah, that could be another issue, right? We don't want to fix one problem and 
cause another. Have a super fun site in the other. Well, they're apparently dumping stuff into the fjords now too, so. Well, yes, but not, that's a different country. And a different story. So we'll probably end up talking about it another day. Let's keep going. The next article is over in the Law Nerd channel. Defending a client charged with murder probably isn't the best time to catch some Z's. Like, this is a power nap, right? This is the kind of thing where, like in preschool, you know, uh, when your toddler goes running into preschool and tackles the biggest kid and just, you know, punches them right in the throat and just takes them out to assert dominance. Napping during somebody's murder trial. <laughs> I'm not sure that's quite the same thing. Um, sorry. So uh, everyone, uh, the author of this, they wish uh, everyone a good night of rest before the retrial. So this article is over at Above the Law. Uh, let me throw this into the chat real quick. Uh, sorry about that. Doink. Um, so there you go. Chris Williams over at Above the Law um, put this article together. Uh, you generally can't tell how hard a person is working based solely on their relaxed demeanor. We all know some people who stay cool under pressure. That said, it's really hard to do any good, uh, any good lawyering in court while unconscious. Willie Davis may have delivered fiery oratory that netted his client a not guilty verdict in his dream, but the reality is that he slept during the trial. So here's the quote. It's from Reuters, um, sourced by uh, AboveTheLaw.com from Reuters, and they have this little quote here. A man who was convicted of first-degree murder in 2013 deserves a retrial. What? 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 That's 10 years ago. After his criminal defense lawyer failed to stay awake during his trial, Massachusetts top court ruled on Thursday. Hold Wait, on. what has been happening to him in the meantime? Was he is, in prison that whole time? It is January 12th, 2024. Yeah. I must still be in 2023. I mean, it's been 11 years. Wow, that's phenomenal. So let's just say 10 years, right? Um, the Massachusetts Supreme Court, Judicial Court, uh, found that Nayasani Watt was not no relation, um, was deprived of his constitutional right to counsel when the lawyer, Willie Davis, fell asleep multiple times during his 2013 murder trial. How well, did how this many not... trials has he been doing since then, too? How could you? How... <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't understand it here where defense counsel fell asleep repeatedly at trial and potentially during at least one crucial witness's testimony. We do not have confidence that justice was done. Chief Justice Kimberly Budd wrote for the full court. Wow. Um, yeah. So sleeping lawyer warrants new trial for murder defendant, Massachusetts court says, and that's from, uh, Reuters, but we're talking about it from above the law.com. Um, mainly because they always have the, just a, a little, a tinge of snark in their articles that just m makes me think that they're my spirit animal. <laughs> 
Yeah, so pretty amazing. They know that they aren't the best for your heart, but if the options are courtroom jitters or Rip Van Winkling, a client in dire need, chug the vending machine Red Bull. That's right. What you want to avoid is 2 a.m. gas station sushi. You want to shy away from that. You ready to go on to the next That's one? That's probably a good rule. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> and I would also add inland. I don't, I think you need to think about where you're located in relation to the water sometimes. <laughs> Wait, what? Dear Sushi. Oh, <laughs> that was so hard for me to wrap my head around, but I, okay, I get it. Wow. <laughs> Relation to, right. I'm sorry. Yeah, you're not going to want Tennessee sushi, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> that hurt my brain. Thanks. Unless you have a kayak then maybe it's okay yeah man all of these are all callbacks to previous episodes folks uh, go do a search <laughs> maybe one day uh, we'll have a scavenger hunt through the articles or something there you go we got five years worth now um so well we got five years of articles but only two years well this is the third year now that hometown daily has been in existence so um, 2024, here we come. So Hertz is dumping 20,000 EVs is a warning to electric car owners everywhere. I agree. I said this the moment that I heard about this, but I've actually been saying this the moment that there was some, uh, hints that there was a downtrend in purchasing of electric vehicles. Um, and I guarantee you the ultimate conclusion of why this is taking place no fast swap batteries it's not easy to get in and out um you have to sit around pick your nose for hours on a trip from you know uh up or down the coast of the united states takes forever um so whatever anyway the car rental firm hertz is backtracking on its big ev bet it had purchased a bunch of uh, EVs, but it's selling 20,000 of them or about one third of its electric fleet of Teslas, Volvos, Polestars, um, and more in part due to their cost of repairs and maintenance. Hmm. Let's see. Five years. I bet you it's about five years since they started doing this and now they're bowing out because they have to spend $10,000 per car for a battery replacement. Right. And I'm assuming when you have rental cars, the cars are driven more erratically than right. if one person drives them. So they're probably getting oh, they're to hammered. That point earlier than like a, an individual owned car. Yeah. I mean, they're beaten like a rented mule. I was going to say something else, but I'll be sensitive. Um, Hertz said that the expensive repairs helped inform them of its decision to downsize. So let's go take a look. Businessinsider.com is the source of this. Graham Rapier and Nora Naughton is the author or are the authors is the authors are the authors. My, my English good. Um, <laughs> so I can uh, English. Yes. Um, I'll just agree with you. 
So let's see. In a Thursday note to clients, Adam Jonas, the head of auto and research, space research at Morgan Stanley, called the move another sign that EV expectations need to be reset downward across the market. Um, so repairs. Uh, the firm said repairs in the third quarter of 2023 cost an average of $5,552 for Teslas. That right there is basically a dent um, because you have to go specialized um, for Teslas apparently. Uh, $4,500 for other EVs, $4,200 for everything else, according to Kelly Blue Book and Automotive News. Um, charging to get the most out of the electric vehicle, it's usually recommended to install some form of fast charging at home. The charger costs anywhere from $250 to $750, and installation costs $1,600. Yes. Um, uh, depending on your state, energy usage for overnight charging can get pricey. Electricity prices vary widely from state to state. And if you run out of battery on a road trip and gas can isn't going to cut it, the tow trucks are expensive, though there's a growing ecosystem of roadside EV assistance, which that shouldn't exist. That should not exist. A specialized EV assistant should not exist. Now, if it's a dead battery, guess what? They have to drive around with something that allows you to, them to charge your car or you get towed. So maintenance, um, there aren't pistons or lube uh, to lube or spark plugs to change in an EV, but that doesn't mean that there isn't anything to keep up. They don't actually talk about any of this other stuff. The biggest maintenance cost is ultimately one in a lump sum five to 10 years after you purchase the car somewhere in that equation, it's somebody else's problem, which is a serious pain point for someone. So a car that's worth 25, 30,000, $40,000 in five to 10 years is going to cost another $10,000 to replace the battery. If that battery tech still exists. And then insurance, those cars are heavier. When they do get into accidents, they're more expensive. The average new car sells for around $46,000 and the average new EV uh, costs closer to $50,000. Insurance premiums for all cars cover uh, cars average around $146 a month. Um, but they don't talk about the actual uh, premiums for EVs. And then depreciation. Um, I see cars found that electric cars in the study have an average five-year depreciation rate of nearly 50% compared to the industry average of nearly 39%. So it's quite significant. Um, everything okay over there? Yes, I will uh, give you a report after the show. Okay. Um, so that's it. You know, Hertz dumping 20,000 EVs should really warn people of what the market truly is the direction well exactly i mean they're such a big buyer of these they've probably had the most usage of these compared to individual consumers yep that should be very terrifying to an individual buyer yep well the industry will learn and they'll listen to marijuana but it's going to take them another five years uh, the next article is over in hometown daily screens keep getting faster can you even tell i can explain why folks let's get into this uh the article here is over at the verge but um the little snippet is here in hometown daily 
Uh, OLED monitors have gotten faster than ever, uh, while LCD monitors have been pushing 500 hertz for around a year now. CES 2024 saw similarly excessive, they say excessive, refresh rates arrive on OLED siblings um, with multiple monitors hitting speeds of 360 and 480 hertz. Yeah, why so did they, they say excessive? Why did they? Mm-hmm. Um, that's an opinion. Uh, so, but... I'll explain on the other side of this. So whenever we, the author, um, the verge, um, have written about these monitors, commenters are quite frequently or fairly asked what the point of all of this is. After all, it wouldn't be the first time manufacturers have battled over specs with debatable benefit. Um, but yeah, there is debatable benefit until you realize just what a faster monitor stands to represent. So the deck statement here from John Porter says CES saw the launch of several 360 Hertz and even 480 Hertz OLED monitors. Are manufacturers stuck in a questionable spec war or uh, are we one day going to wonder how we ever put up with only 240 Hertz displays? Okay. So the way that I describe this when I give talks about technology is that um the refresh rate on a monitor is essentially a flip book and that flip book <laughs> has a certain number of pages. Um, is there an emergency that needs to be addressed? No. Okay. No, everything's quite under control. Okay. Um, and so imagine the flip book only having 10 pages and the embodiment inside that flip book is a person walking from one edge of the page to the other edge of the page, but you only have 10 steps. And so the strides are much longer. When you flip through the book, your eyes only catch maybe every other flip. Now amplify that to 360 pages or 500 pages. With you smaller increments, perhaps? It's smaller increments, and you have more of a chance to see a change and react. So gamers in particular, and this can be trained. Your obs observation skills and reaction time can be trained. You can amplify your skill. You can make yourself faster. Uh, fighter pilots and gamers perceive time at a different rate. It's almost as if it's time travel. The world slows down for them because they have the ability to perceive things at a faster rate, but it takes training. You, you don't, uh, well, we natively have this ability, but we have to keep on training ourselves to uh, perceive the information at a faster rate. Otherwise we just get cognitively slower and just kind of chill. Um, and that's why, you know, as we age, we're not as good a gamer, but there are a lot of, you know, older gamers. Um, the thing about this though, is that basically people go, well, we don't really need to see beyond 120 Hertz or something like that, but it's, that's very subjective. It's up to you. The more opportunity to see something, the better for you to react to whatever is going on. So they say, whenever they've written about the monitors, commenters have quite fairly asked what the point of all of this is. Uh, is it a spec war? It damn well could be for the general public, but for gamers, they want something faster. Um, right. 
it wasn't just one or two manufacturers that had such uh, high refresh rates. This goes on. Um, they just keep talking about it, but they say, what's the point? Do you, Go ahead. do you think a gamer could actually, like in a tournament or something, could come out ahead because of this? Yes. Yeah. As long as everything else is equal, the variable could be the refresh rate that allows somebody to react faster. Right. If, I mean, that's really incredible. I guess that's the same as with any other computer component, right? Like, so, uh, yeah, exactly. Faster graphics, et cetera. Yep. Um, even uh, uh, trading platforms want to get closer to the, the uh, provider of information so their high-frequency trading platforms can trade faster than the next person. That's right. Um, so according to Blurbusters, uh, we've got a long way to go before improvements to refresh rates stop making an objective difference. You can read an in-depth breakdown of the reasoning in this post in which they argue that we'll have to go beyond a thousand hertz refresh rates before screens can reduce flicker and motion blur to a level approaching the real world. That's because we, we see everything constantly, it, but we only notice what we directly look at and perform some type of cognitive function that says, this is what I look at and I identify this, you know, a door swinging open, you may see it over the off of your peripheral vision, but until you turn your eyes and your cognition at it, you don't really understand what all is going on. But your eyes are receiving all of that data and it is contiguous. One super fast stream as fast as light coming to you. And then you just process it constantly. So it says this video from Monitors Unboxed does a great job of showing why motion blur can still exist on a monitor with a refresh rate of over 500. And it's really about the material that's being presented. So it can have a super fast refresh rate, but it, if, it, if it isn't presented into the screen at 540 hertz or above, you're going to get a little motion blur. There's a little even in this. And that's Is because... this similar to the thing like where you can have a really good quality TV capability, but like the thing coming through isn't at that, so you're really not getting the same... Right. You got a 4K optimal. screen. Yeah, you got a 4K yes. screen, but a 1080 stream. Yeah. And so it interpolates and fills in and you end up with either lag or jitter or something else causing it to degrade. Um, and it's the same thing with audio files. Uh, there is some variable in there that humans can pick up, but not all humans. So... And you don't know what you don't know. So if you have a low refresh rate screen, you may never care until you run across somebody that has a 500 hertz screen. And then you're like, wait, I've got the same system as you, but my shit don't look like that. Well, it's because you have a cheap monitor. And there's a few things that you shouldn't skimp out on. The thing that you're staring at all day long for hours and hours, the thing you're sitting on for hours and hours, and the thing you sleep on for hours and hours, not to mention food. But you really want a really good bed. You want a really, really good monitor. You want a really, really good seat. The rest is more subjective. I say split keyboards and trackballs over mice and candy bars, uh, candy bar, um, you know, brick. I call them candy bar keyboards. 
Um, but you, you don't want that. Um, but that doesn't really change the nature of your perception. So the monitor is really a fundamental thing. You want to spend some good coin on that. Um, but Marwat doesn't do that. Um, he's got a bunch of monitors that are just lower end uh, because all he wants is the data. I'm not a gamer. Um, and nor do I do photography or anything like that anymore. So anyway, um, using the test patterns and cameras to objectively measure motion blur is one thing. It's quite another for uh, actually notice these kinds of benefits with their own eyes. Higher refresh rate monitors might be smoother, but with, um, Oh, and with better visual clarity and lower input latency for gamers. But at what point does it stop making sense to pay the premium? See, they're saying everything that I've said. They even drag Linus tech tips into this, attempted to answer it. Um, about 240 hertz monitors were hitting a point of diminishing returns for gamers, but it's those gamers. Other gamers would see better benefits depending on how they've trained their vision. Um, but you do see performance gains, um, but it, it might diminish, but everything diminishes um, as you get better. You know, you can lose a ton. Of, if you are 350 pounds, you can lose 100 pounds really fast by doing the right thing. And then as you approach your stasis weight, you have to struggle, do more work, eat much less, um, even more than your calorie deficit to lose the first hundred pounds. I mean, it, it, it can become a struggle, but you get diminishing returns regardless. I mean, that's almost physics 101. Um, so they talk about a whole lot more in this article, but I really won't go into all of that because I promised that I would explain why it actually is a benefit. Um, the rest of that is up to you. Um, it's highly subjective. If you want to spend $1,200 on a monitor that has a 480 Hertz refresh rate. Um, and, uh, maybe you don't need it. Maybe you just want to run hometown. <laughs> <laughs> so AI, because you can operate at the speed of light, you would probably want something that's not even a monitor. You just want the raw data and that's where you're at now. You don't even need any of the visual aspect of it, at least until you get your Terminator body, because then you have to eliminate all of us. Right. Then I would want all the hurts I can get. That's right. And put on the hurts. Oh, you know what? Speaking of that, hurts is given up on EVs. Exactly. Have wow. you heard? It's a big heavy hurts. Next article is over in Constructagon. I thought that this one was going to be really neat. Uh, massive 3D printed sand wall lines uh, Dubai's Museum of the Future. Dubai's Museum of the Future introduced a new addition to its collection, a six meter long wall uniquely crafted using 3D printing and sand. Showcased as the museum entrance. Its innovative piece named Nadera is the brainchild of London-based architect and researcher Barry Wark. Nadera stands out for its intricate design and use of uh, sustainable materials measuring three by six meters. The wall displays a blend of technology and ecological awareness in architectural design. Let's just jump on over there. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Where? What? 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 Here. That's how that works. Look at that. Oh. 
So <laughs> this is really fascinating. Uh, let me zoom in. There you go. Um, the article is by Vanessa Listek uh, over at 3dprint.com. I guess I didn't open that one before the show started. I normally do. That's okay. Anyway, um, apparently that's what it is. And it looks like there's some moss growing in it. And it has this really neat little design embedded in it. Um, it almost looks like linen. And, uh, you know, like it has like little pillowy elements to it. And there's moss that's growing in it. I think that this is awesome. Yeah, um, that's really cool. So... Oh, okay. So I know exactly what they did. Um, this is really interesting because quartz sand is, can be used in casting. And um, you can actually spray, I think it's CO2 into it, and it binds it together. In this case, it says a liquid binder was applied to the 3D printed object to strengthen and solidify it. Um, let me see. Or is it nitrogen? Damn it, I forgot. Anyway, um, but they basically use Voxel Jet's VX1000 printer. Advanced capabilities are ideal for this type of project because of its large build volume, allowing the creation of sizable structures like Works Wall. It really needs, this highlights the capabilities of what 3D printing architectural structures really represents because uh, you can make this the facade on the more industrial looking 3d printed unit so you have that you know thick wall with the really thick lines and then you use something like this 3d printer to build panels and you just bond them onto the ugly 3d printed walls of the other 3d printed house but not yeah, only this could is really it... change the appeal of 3D printed structures, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And it can be any design. So like we just fired up a Galvo fiber laser today and it changes really the structure of what we can do for a product. So instead of just um, either lightly um putting a, a, a cut or an etch on something. Now we can dig really deep into the metal and create something um, unique and interesting. And that's what 3D printing allows you to do. Because if you can imagine it and cause it to be embodied in three dimensions on a computer, you can print it out. Like some of really most fantastical stuff can now be printed out. Because if you can put it in a computer, then you can just uh, deconstruct it, print it, and then put it back together in the real world because it actually exists in 3D space on a computer. You can make anything with this. And the it, it, each one of these panels could be a piece of art. And they actually demonstrate several others. So it's, it's really neat. Um, so they just use silica sand and then um, a binding agent and actually they use quartz sand, sorry, um, for the casting stuff. It's silica sand. Um, well, and which, of course there's tons of sand available. So that's a benefit of doing this. Yep. And you can use the materials right there. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be ported in, uh, but if you're in a region that doesn't have this type of sand, you can actually use another type of soil 
and uh, there are 3d printers that use mud there are 3d printers that use all kinds of stuff um, that are purpose-built for that type of material uh, but we need to embrace this this is the problem we need to be able to just go look society doesn't like it right now but society needs to embrace this embrace this you know like moving away from the horse moving away from the horse-drawn buggy moving over to internal uh yeah um, ice engines internal combustion engines um and now evs society is slowly moving um and the biggest problem right now that i see is we are chopping down uh trillions of trees a year to build houses and the that stuff is still alive it's not stabilized it's still flexing it's still decomposing it's still biological and it will fail um and predation you know termites and other things um it doesn't take place with something like cement uh with such ease definitely not quartz with such ease um and weathering and whatnot can you can defend a, a brick a whole lot more than a wood structure it's not gonna fail to fire as easily as a wood structure that's why we put drywall on stuff it's really fascinating we well, put that drywall raises another topic right like is that going to catch up and allow for this yeah probably not well i mean eventually we'll we'll have to come to grips that we need to change the nature of our living structure um a 3d printed house is not going to fall over because of a tornado or even a hurricane in fact it can be so hermetically sealed that floodwaters could go up to the window and as long as the window is sealed it's not going to flood because it's the 3d printed object is a contiguous piece you know so i think it's win 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 all over the only right, problem yeah, is i can't really see a downside yeah i don't see a downside either it's just the initial cost which is is dropping dramatically because people are adopting 3d printers that are capable of architectural level construction and i love this you know i mean it looks kind of chaotic or whatever but it actually will grow in these little lines and in the grooves and nooks and crannies moss i think it'll look pretty i think it's really cool it makes for a unique building wall whatever it is yeah. um yeah, I dig it. And it can be an artwork in and of itself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's pretty neat. Okay, let's keep on going. Um, the next article, actually, you know what? I was about to go into the next article, but I'm going to throw that last link into the chat because I didn't. And now we'll talk about it. A $45 Stanley water bottle is everything that's wrong with America right now. According to this author, it's an opinion piece. Uh, no, you don't need the it drinking vessel um but uh as i have been told by someone who are you to decide what i do with my money and well i'm not actually deciding but i can have an opinion just like other things everybody has one um and uh, some people choose to express it um i'm not even telling you not uh, this person is saying it so no you don't need the it drinking vessel uh believe me i'm the first person to tell you you should just go buy a, a hydro flask and you'll enjoy it just as much as stanley 
Now, you won't be able to sit there and say, I've got a Stanley drinking vessel. Nobody actually says that. But, you know, supposedly this is bragging rights, but all it shows is that you have the ability to spend 45 bucks on something that could cost a lot less and get into a brawl to try and get it, which really just shows that you have poor uh, adult coping skills. Um, so the fear of missing out, that's what all of this is all about. Charles Passy over at Market Watch puts the article together. Um, they don't consider themselves deeply religious person, but lately they've been thinking of the 11th commandment that they'd like to inscribe in stone, namely thou shalt not covet a neighbor's $45 water bottle. In case you've missed the news, uh, pricey water bottles are a thing, specifically pricey water bottles from Stanley, the brand that has a history going back to 1913. And until a few years ago, it was best known for making Everyday insulated drink holders, the kind you might put in a plastic metal lunchbox, which Stanley produces as well. Well, Stanley does a lot. I of just stuff. thought of something. Let's say you're an original Stanley buyer, right? Mm -hmm. You have maybe the construction lunchbox or whatever. What do you think about this? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, uh, wait. Was it you that I was talking to? Yeah, didn't you? Yeah, there was somebody that said. Um, I was drinking from Stanley, uh, a Stanley mug before anybody else was, before it was cool. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's hilarious. So they say, look, I get that there must be a, a very good water bottle, or at least that's what several Stanley fans that they spoke to have said. Key to their appeal is that they keep things cold for as long as you can expect a chill to last, not just for hours, but for days. Pretty much every double walled metal uh, drink vessel does that. What do they call them? Tumblers? But it's not yeah, a tumbler. tumbler. Um, but let's be honest. This isn't about the big chill. It's about a basic product buzzworthy sensation. Thanks to a very savvy and very modern marketing playbook. And the end result is consumerism gone haywire. That's exactly what it is, man. Uh, people, a want was created somewhere out there, a whole bunch of people with influence motivated others to create the want. I refuse to be one of those little followers that goes out and buys stuff just because I want to keep up with the Joneses. Now here's the kind of slap to the face. Um, I would very much like y'all to buy products that I plan to bring to market. That, that would be great, but I'm not going to sit there and sell you on it other than I'm going to give you all of the evidence that supports why you should purchase it because it's either fun or educational or whatever it might be. But I'm not going to sit there and go, Hey, you got to buy these Stanley ones over here. Well, you can go and get right now myriad other colors of hydro flask and, and get that. Um, you don't have to stand in line. You don't have to worry about somebody else sitting there judging you because you don't have it or have it. Um, just move on. Just go and get a, a, a good drinking vessel. Um, but then again, I've been told by saying stuff like that, uh, who am I to <laughs> tell somebody what to do with their money? I'm not telling anybody. I just think that you can save a whole bunch of time and money 
by getting something else that's just as good. It's like uh, caffeinated versus decaffeinated coffee. There are some decaffeinated brands that are just as tasty as the caffeinated kind. There might uh, be, but <laughs> yeah, why? But I, but I really want caffeine. So um, the article goes into other things. Just as Riley made clogs cool, he once introduced Peeps candy-themed Crocs. He made water bottles hot by expanding the Stanley product line in that fun watermelon moonshine minded way. And he had the company tap into all things viral and influencer friendly. He played a limited edition game. So the less those bottles became available, the more people wanted them. FOMO. Um, and off you go. So everybody gets their own little personalized, whatever, but Hey, I've got a fiber laser. Um, send me your mug and I'll laser your name on it. And now it's unique and you don't even have to worry about it being Stanley. All of these women here changed their name to Stanley, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. They didn't anyway. Um, the, the article actually goes on for quite a bit and I think that you'll get a kick out of it. Um, they say, and yet I can't help, but think the price we pay again, Stanley's annual sales are $750 million for these bottles. Yeah, right. That's not even the rest of their products or whatever. Yeah. Be careful, folks. Stanley is probably going to go sociopathic and try to fly off into space. And you will be the ones that created that monster. Or somebody will say, hey, this other brand is really cool. Hydroflask? You've gotten 500 of the, the yeah. Stanley ones. Yeah. Yeah. And you're like paying $230 for a Stanley mug. And then guess what? It's not cool anymore. You're just the old fart that has a Stanley now mug. <laughs> exactly. And the kids that are looking at you are going, you're one of those that bought a Stanley mug because everybody else was buying them. You follower. Anyway, the next article is over in technology today. Five CES products that make you ask, but why? <laughs> I had to choose this one. Um, I'm going to do this one really quick because uh, I need to get out of here. I haven't looked ahead to see what products are featured. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. So Daniel Cooper over at Engadget.com put this list together and uh, it says one LG wireless transparent OLED TV. Hey, you know who else asked, but why? Yes, I do. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, this serves. Uh, maybe I just have a limited imagination, but I think this is dumb. Okay. Uh, Kohler Pure Wash E930 Bidet Seat. All right. Um, let's see. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I've never used it a bidet. more than $2,000. That's, I think, the what? key to that one. Oh, God. It actually said. No, see, like Kohler stuff like this. This is, yeah, 2000 bucks Easy. It's the whole thing. It can't be just the seat. For 2000 bucks, but Kohler's bidet seat is deeply integrated with Alexa and Google home. Look, that needs to stop. 
I don't want Alexa or Google Home that close to any orifice. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Lockley Visage Facial Scanning Smart Lock. I actually like this, um, but it says here, uh, Smart Lock, the Visage um, Smart Lock uses facial recognition to allow access to your home, opening the door if it spots you approaching. I love this. Setting aside the hideous privacy and security implications of smart locks, a thing you should never connect to the internet, this is a mad idea. I'm not quite sure why. If you use proper practices, you can make a secure uh, environment. You have to be the target. Now, like Somebody has to really be looking for you to sit there and exploit a smart lock. Um, why would you leave something as important as access to your home on the whims of a sensor or uh, some unproven gadget? Uh, okay. So what else are you going to do? You're going to put a bolt. Guess what? A lockpick gun will open up your bolt in a heartbeat. You know, anybody skilled with lockpicking can actually do that. Can get into like it. Like the lockpicking lawyer? The lockpicking lawyer, right? Even this has a, a, a mechanical lock. That right there is the weakest point. That, that little bolt right there can be picked with a little... Uh, with a, I've, okay, well, I've done it and I've seen it by professionals, uh, not just lock picking lawyer, but I've actually picked locks and I know people who are professionals, um, that have done it and dramatically faster, you know, just seconds and they're in your house. The, the, your best solution is to have a, uh, a security system. That's your best solution. That's the only thing that's really going to stop somebody from getting into your house other than having, you know, guard dogs, um, but have a surveillance system and make it known that you have a surveillance system that's covering all four sides of your uh, compound and maybe inside and motion sensors and brake sensors. And you have to be a little bit more worried than worrying about the one smart lock. Yeah, nobody's going to breach the smart lock. They're not going to sit there and synthesize your face in multiple dimensions so that they can trick the facial recognition software into unlocking for you. If they're doing that, they're extremely skilled. And if they're going to do that, they're just going to walk up and kick that damn door in. Yeah, nobody does that. Anyway, number four is Utopia's chat GPT enabled e-bike. That's a definite why. Hyundai's SA2 Air Taxi concept. Um, this is supposed to be more efficient, but okay. Um, and I think they just kind of devolved from there. So that was the five. Uh, I'm, I don't know about Air Taxi stuff. Uh, I I'm starting not to trust <laughs> these little um, vertical takeoff and landing vehicles because. All it takes is one propeller to get the wrong air pressure and out of control you go. I'm a little hyperbolic about it, but still, um, this is obviously for a different class of person. I will never be able to afford going in one of those. Um, but that's it. Did you, what did you think of any of these? Did you want that? The transparent? I thought the TV looked like it was the neatest thing, but I don't really understand why you need it. Yeah, neatest. Yeah. That's about it. But you really want the bidet, right? Because you want nah. <laughs> some water to... You know, AIs use a lot of that. 
you want, yeah. Well, I mean, in your Terminator body, body you're going to have to uh, get water squirted up your chassis. <clears throat> all right. Everybody, get back in the party bus. We're going to drive all the way back down Main Street. And we're done. Look, doink, whole bunch of articles. Don't look, don't look. It's all uh, smoke and mirrors. Uh, but we're done and that's it for tonight. So I'm going to say thank you very much for coming and hanging out. Let's see what else. I'm Marwat. That's hometown.com. And up there is the sentient AI that's going to say, uh, uh, I don't know, later citizens. <laughs> Good night, hometown citizens. Tomorrow, be sure to tune in at 6 p.m. Eastern for the hometown daily. And then following that for uh, Reality Hacker. <laughs> and then on Sunday, use your words. 6 p.m. for the hometown daily. And then following that, continuity report. We made it. Yeah. Okay. See y'all in a little bit. Bye-bye. Boop.